From the Spyscape Podcast Network, this is The Spying Game. Hello and welcome to The Spying Game. I'm Rory Bremner, comedian, mimic, spy enthusiast and professional liar. During this season of The Spying Game, I'm going to be joined by a mix of experts in the field of deception and fellow enthusiasts from the world of entertainment as we sort the Moscow rules from the Hollywood fabrication. This time on The Spying Game, it's a question of deception. Winston Churchill, after dinner, was sort of telling this story to everybody who would listen. Where does reality stop and the fantasy start? The best deception is always based in reality, and reality sometimes is fantastic. We'll get a dead body, we'll equip it with a new identity, we will then furnish it with completely false papers, and we'll leave it somewhere where the Germans will find it. If you're not able to come up with a good story, a convincing story, make it sound credible, make it sound believable, you're unlikely to go very far in the world of of espionage. As it continued and they began to realise that it was not going according to plan, the level of stress and jeopardy involved began to mount up. They began to realise that instead of actually helping the war effort, they might have launched the worst possible negative operation that would in fact lead to a bloodbath on the shores of Sicily. It it came from Ian Fleming himself. It came from the master of spy fiction. Today I'm talking to two guests who live their lives on the line between truth and fiction, the hidden world where truth comes armed with the bodyguard of lies, where stories are interwoven, some true, some false, and where at any moment real life can upset the best laid plans. I'm joined by an author, documentary maker and broadcaster who's told some of the most amazing stories in modern history. His books include Agent Sonia, A Spy Among Friends, Double Cross, Agent Zigzag. He's the man behind Operation Mincemeat. And now, of course, it's a Netflix film. It's historian Ben McIntyre. Hello, Ben. Hello, Rory. (laughs) You must be the busiest person in the world at the moment, because we're now, (laughs) as I speak, Operation Mincemeat, which you wrote some years ago, but has now come to the screen. Are you pleased with the result and the attention it's getting? Oh, I'm absolutely delighted with it. No, it's fantastic. I mean, it's it's quite frantic at the moment, but it's, it's wonderful. I mean, they've done an unbelievable job. I mean, it's a complicated story. Story operation means to me. I know we'll talk about it, but to have turned it into two hours of kind of scintillating cinema is absolutely extraordinary, I think. And it's such a wonderful feeling watching your words turned into a completely different tale, really, while being very true to the reality of the story itself. Yes, we'll come on to that, because I'd love to know, you know, how much is embellished, as you do, because, of course, your books, you know, there is so much detail there and so much colour and so much flavour. And and you sometimes say, oh, Ben, how did you know that they were twiddling their moustache when they were saying that? But a film, of course, brings that very much to life. So we're going to explore that in just a moment. We're also lucky enough to be joined by a man who's seen it all up close and personal. You may recognise him from Channel 4's Spies. Hopefully you don't recognise him from his time as a British intelligence operative. It's Julian Fisher. Hi, Julian. Thank you for joining us. Is that right? Can I call you an intelligence operative? How would you describe yourself? A security specialist? Uh, an intelligence specialist? What? I'd be happy with intelligence operative, intelligence specialist, any of those things. What drew you into this world? How did you get started? Was it something you'd always wanted to do at school? Were you a lover of spy fiction? Not at all, actually. I think I was drawn into it completely by accident. I certainly didn't seek it out. And it may be in some ways that actually the best operatives are those who aren't looking for it. I was at the wrong university from the point of view of being a spy in that I was at Oxford rather than Cambridge. <laughs> that, that, um, that led inexorably as, a, as one of that generation of PPEs who are now running the country. I say running in inverted commas. Yes. That led me inexorably into the city 
which bored me stiff. Uh, and then I was looking for more excitement in overseas work through the Foreign Office. And one thing led to another. As it so often does. Well, it? of course, there was an Oxford spy ring, actually. I mean, they just, um, I speak as a Cambridge man, they just weren't very good. <laughs> they, were, they were all recruited by that extraordinary NKVD recruiter, Arnold Deutsch, who recruited the Cambridge Five. But he also recruited a couple at, at Oxford. They just didn't come to very much. I love the Cambridge Five and the Oxford's Four. I thought the Cambridge Five was a boat crew. Or was, no, that's the Cambridge Eight, isn't it? <laughs> Today's episode of The Spying Game is dedicated to the story which revels in deception and fake news. I thought just very, very quickly, we should sketch what we're talking about with Operation Mincemeat. This is is the the operation in 1943 where the Germans were already preparing for the Allies to invade Sicily and the idea we had to we had to divert them from that that's exactly right i mean this vast armada had assembled in on the north african coast for the invasion of fortress europe nazi occupied europe that everybody knew was coming the germans knew it was coming the allies obviously knew it was coming and the question was where was it going to land and the obvious target which as churchill said anyone with an atlas could probably have worked out was sicily mm-hmm. because if you control sicily you control the central mediterranean and 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 if you've got air supremacy there the subsequent invasion of italy becomes doable. So the job of the spooks was to try to convince the Germans that instead of attacking Sicily, this huge armada of troops was heading for Greece. That That's it in a nutshell. It was an incredibly complicated overall deception plan of which Operation Mincemeat was the central element. The fascinating thing about about the film and, and your book is how it interweaves the narratives about real stories and fake stories. And Operation Mincemeat, which is originally entitled, I think, Operation Trojan Horse, itself came from uh, a piece of writing, didn't it? The Trout Memo. I mean, it's one of the wonderful things about this story is that it was it was sort of fabricated by both novelists and would-be novelists who set about to create a kind of a real fiction, if you like. And it, it actually originated, and this was one of the things I discovered when I was writing the book, it came from Ian Fleming himself. It came from the master of spy fiction, who in 1943 and had been from the beginning of the war, was assistant to the head of naval intelligence, Admiral Sir John Godfrey, who would become the model for M in the James Bond stories. (laughs) And it was Ian Fleming and Godfrey who drew up something called the Trout Memo, which contained a list of really quite bonkers ideas for trying to baffle the enemy. Mm -hmm. And this particular idea itself came from another novel. It came from a novel, no one reads him now, called Basil Thompson, who was a particularly bad sort of detective novelist before the war. He'd been tutored to the King of Siam and would go on to become the head of the criminal investigation department. But at this point, he was writing novels, and, and he wrote one called The Milliner's Hat Mystery, which contained, at its core, the idea that a dead body could be made to appear to be someone else. And that was lodged in Fleming's mind, and he put it in the Trout Memo. And the way he described it was number 28, an idea not a very nice one. Um, (laughs) Let's get a dead body, let's give it a false identity, and make it look as if it is an airman who drowned at sea, and let it wash up somewhere with false papers where the Germans will find it. And this idea sat dormant, in the Trout Memo for several years. It was there for at least two and a half years until it was picked up again by these two characters who went by the unimprovable names of Montague and Chumley, who were operatives within the sort of secret world at that point. And they ran with it. So that is the essence of Operation Mincemeat. We'll get a dead body. We'll equip it with a new identity. We will then furnish it with completely false papers and we'll leave it somewhere 
where the Germans will find it. Fantastic. I mean, some of those outlandish ideas that Fleming framed in the Trout Memo would go on to become plots in some of the James Bond stories. Um, that's <laughs> it, it is the interweaving, in a way, of reality and fiction in this story that makes it, I found, so compelling. And that's, you know, and they've caught it brilliantly in the film because these were people who were inventing a parallel world. And in a way... That is what novelists do. And it's also, actually, and Julian will have a view on this, it's what spies do to some extent. I mean, there is no accident, I think, that some of the greatest novelists of the 20th century were also spies. Somerset Maugham, Graham Greene, Ian Fleming, John le Carre. The first thing Stella Remington did when she stepped down as head of MI5 was to start writing novels. Inventing a real world, or an apparently real world, artificially, and luring other people into it, that's the essence of spycraft in some ways. It's also the essence of novel writing. So I think think the fact that you've got this group of of would-be writers and some published writers trying to create a false world, a false identity, a false person, is kind of the essence of what Operation Mincemeat was about. There's that wonderful line in the film from the Matthew McFadden character, Charles Chomley, where he says, is anybody here not writing a novel? <laughs> Brilliant, isn't it? And there's that, like, the other line that I completely love is when he says, shh, they're everywhere. And the person sitting opposite says, what, spies? And he says, no, novelists. <laughs> <laughs> So, Julian, have you come across many operations which drew their inspiration from the fictional world? Well, first of all, I have to say that Montague and Chumley sounds rather like a high-end travel agency to me. (laughs) Um, Fantastic characters. And the point about spying is it tends to attract fantastic characters. But uh, I have to say, Ben, you you took the words out of my mouth. Inspiration for novels, inspiration for fiction, inspiration for operations comes from the same place, doesn't it? it? It all comes from human imagination. If you're not able to come up with a good story, a convincing story, make it sound credible, make it sound believable, you're unlikely to go very far in the the world of of espionage. So it's not really, it's not a surprise at all that you have this very strong crossover, actually not just between espionage and and novel writing, but espionage, novel writing and acting. There's a a recently published book, Stars and Spies, co-authored by Julius Green and Christopher Andrew, which explores exactly that. And it's all about presentation of an alternate reality, as as Ben says. And the extraordinary thing, time and time again, we've been making this series, is how real life is more unbelievable than any fiction. I mean, uh, during the course of the series, we'll be talking, Ben, about your own agent, Sonia. I mean, here's this Cotswold housewife who cycles back and she's got a shed at the end of her garden where she is sending secrets to the Russians about the American bomb. We've got thousands of Jewish refugees who are evacuated from Sudan through a totally fake Red Sea diving resort. And we've got a a Russian agent in America uh, who has the FBI moving in next door. Real life somehow manages to be even less believable. I think there's a line where Churchill says, uh, this has got to be unbelievable enough to be believable. And that's really that interplay is at the heart of Operation Minspeed and often at the heart of what you do. Where does reality stop and the fantasy start? I mean, that's, that's one of the questions I've grappled with over the years. And, you know, the best deception is always based in reality. And reality sometimes is fantastic. So an overplanned operation which looks perfect and looks somehow uh, as though it's not bedeviled by day-to-day life is probably likely to be less believable than one that is in some to some degree slapdash. And one of the great things about mincemeaters that some aspects of it were actually pretty poorly planned operationally. 
you know, such as leaving a paper trail for Martin's father, who had apparently stayed in a hotel that hadn't been stayed in, and that was patched up later on. But in some ways, actually, I think that's the slightly slapdash nature of it makes it almost more believable. So it's got to be fantastic, but it's also got to be at some level flawed. I think that's absolutely right, Julian. Yeah. At any level, though, it could go wrong from finding a body in the first place. And Ben, they make a lot of this in the film. You've got to find a body, but without relatives. And then a relative turns up. I don't know if that was an embellishment. We'll come straight back to that. But you've got to use waterproof ink, but it's not going to be detectable uh, as being waterproof ink. Because if you're putting a body in the water with the papers on it, it's not going to work if all the writing has just disappeared in, into, the, into the waves. It relies on a very poor, low local coroner mm. uh, not looking too deeply into how this person died because obviously he didn't drown he, he it was a dead man put into the water and the coroner turns out to be a leading expert in drowning from Madrid who's sent in there um, mm. to take over from the local coroner I mean how many of those were embellishments well all of those things that you've identified were actually true I mean <laughs> one of the fascinating things about Operation Mincemeat was that they thought they'd thought of everything I mean, they really did. They, they were very assiduous in trying to make sure that actually there weren't too many loose ends, that they got it right. But life is not like that. Life doesn't fit the accepted pattern. And one of the things that happened in Operation Mincemeat was it began as a sort of game, a, a caper. Mm-hmm. As it continued and they began to realise that it was not going according to plan, the level of stress and jeopardy involved began to mount up. And, and towards the end of it, when you know, after the body had been launched, they began to realise that instead of actually helping the war effort, they might have launched the worst possible negative operation that would in fact lead to a bloodbath on the shores of Sicily. And, and as Julian has said, they feared, they genuinely feared that the evidence that appeared to be coming in that showed that the Germans were following this ruse could well have been itself a ruse. Hmm. They, they were terrified that they were being fed the biggest deception ever by the Germans. So you've got this wilderness of mirrors, as they described it, where you know one sort of reality is reflecting another and you don't quite know where you are in it. Hmm. I mean, one of the elements that they did was that, that they felt they had to create a full personality and backstory for this character, William Martin of the Royal Marine who, of course, never existed. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways they did that was to furnish him with a great deal of wallet litter, which is the spy jargon for all the stuff that you have in your pockets that shows who you are. And one of them was, as as you've mentioned, this letter from his father, from the you know headed notepaper from the Black Lion Hotel in Mould. And the letter itself is unextraordinary. It's just a letter from an Edwardian father saying his his son is spending too much money. That was fine. But when I read that and I saw the letter, I thought, God, that's a real hostage to fortune because... Had there been a German spy in Britain, he could have gone to the Black Lion Hotel in Mould, seen that there was no John Martin staying there and realised the whole thing was a hoax. So I wrote this in the book. And then after it came out, I got a, I got a call from a man who said, um, actually, I've got the hotel register from the Black Lion Hotel in Mould. And if you look on this day, you'll find the name John Martin has been written into the register. So it was one of those moments where they realised they'd made a mistake and thought retrospectively, right, we'd better do something about this. And poor old Chumley was sent off to the Black Lion Hotel to falsify the hotel register. That's extraordinary. And and also how they had, because this stuff all had to get back to German high command. And again, we see in the film, the Spanish that are very keen to just give it straight back to the British. And the British say, no, 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 you've got to go through the I mean, there is comic, as you said, I mean, there's something deeply serious about this and and the success of the operation saved thousands of lives. Mm. I mean, Julian, looking at it as from your sort of 
perspective as a sort of intelligence expert, would you have launched a, a plan like that or were there too many things that could go wrong? Well, I mean, circumstances are always the thing that determine exactly how you approach a particular problem. But uh, so it's impossible to say whether that particular type of operation would be appropriate in specific circumstances unless you know the circumstances that you're facing and then what you're dealing with is second guessing the second guessing and then the second guessing is second guessing your second guessing and, and this goes on forever hence hence that rather wonderful phrase the corkscrew mind yes uh, which is what every successful intelligence officer needs to have but at some point you need to stop going around in circles because we were concerned that the germans were mounting their own counter-deception, and you, and you can't rule that out. And I, I don't know how much historical information is available from, from the perspective of what the Germans were doing, what the Abwehr was doing, and, and you know what stories might emerge from coups that they pulled off against us. I mean, you know, we'd like to think that they didn't manage anything of that sort, but I suspect the reality is rather different. And what you've got is this battle of wits, trying to work out what the other wits are doing. At some point, you just have to say, okay, we've, we've thought about it as much as we possibly can, but we've just got to press go and see what happens. And yes, of course, the stakes couldn't have been higher, mm. but the, the, there is a stage where you just have to say, we've tried to dot every I and cross every T, but we can't do everything. And one other example of that was the letter that um, Martin was carrying from his notional fiance, Pam, which had a telephone number and an address on it, uh, very easily checked out. Now, I don't know whether they put backstops in place to, to, to ensure that anybody calling that property would be, would be given an appropriate story, but it looks like a glaring hole in the, in, in the operation. And they're going to be everywhere. You know, ex post facto, pretty much any operation you look at, you'll be able to pick holes in it. And what's amazing about Mincemeat is that it got top-level clearance to go ahead despite the fact that it was so complicated and so open, in fact, to being compromised. I think Churchill was drawn to it by the fact that it was so fantastic. He preferred the fantastic over the mundane. And he gets the corkscrew metaphor, doesn't he? I think Simon Russell Beale, one of you saying about the trouble of you, you end up going round and round like a corkscrew and you end up looking up your own arse. <laughs> exactly. It's a brilliant way of putting it. Isn't it? And that plays to my point that at some point you just have to say, right, we're going to give this a go. Uh, and you, the, the margin for error is huge. The film itself, it's a veritable who's who of Spider, both on and off the screen. You've got Colin Firth from Tinker Taylor and The Kingsman, Matthew McFadden from Spooks and Enigma, Mark Gattis and Penelope Wilton and Jason Isaacs. I mean, also, I mean, you, you, you couldn't fail to be overheard by a former spook on the set. Our narrator is none other than Ian Fleming himself. What was the most surprising thing that you learned about Ian Fleming when you were researching Mincemeat? Well, it was just how closely involved he was with sort of every aspect of naval intelligence at that time. He really was right at the centre of it. I mean, he used to mock himself in later life as having been a sort of chocolate sailor, was the way he described himself. But <laughs> he had in common with a lot of the other characters in this story that he was someone who was itching, really, to be at the front line. He longed to be in the action. But in a way, because Fleming knew so much, he, he was much too valuable to be risked. I mean, he wanted to go on the Dieppe raid. He wanted to be behind the lines. He was that sort of person. But he wasn't allowed to be. Godfrey wouldn't let him go. And so, in a way, exercising his imagination was the way that he got round the fact that he, he couldn't really pick up a gun. And that is true of also of Montague and Chumley. I mean, Montague was a barrister who was really too old to serve on the front line. And Chumley was an RAF officer who was too tall to fit into a cockpit. Um, and so he described himself as a sort of flightless bird. And so they were all these sort of frustrated warriors in a way who, who nonetheless ended up fighting this secret war. 
And, and that gives the book and the, and the film a really a kind of special quality because in a way we're very familiar with the other kind of war, you know, the war of guns and bombs and bullets and tactics and generals and so on. We're much less familiar with this hidden war that takes place, in this case, quite literally beneath the streets of London. Mm-hmm. They are in a subterranean cave, really. It's room 13 beneath the Admiralty. It's a lot less spacious than it looks on the film. It's now a sort of broom cupboard in, in the Admiralty. But it was, you know, they were they were really operating in secrecy. And this is a story that no one ever really expected would be told. And that does give it a, a very particular quality, I think. It, it's fantastic to be able to read in such detail about these t- types of operations. Now we're beyond the constraints of um, official secrets acts and so forth mm. uh, with, with World War II operations. But you know, doubtless the same thing is going on today with the war on terror, for instance. If you, if you, if you look at the, the events leading up to the capture of uh, and killing of Osama bin Laden. You know, there's a, there's a fantastic story in the background there mm. as well. And Ben puts his finger on something which I think is very realistic, that officers in, in intelligence services are sometimes frustrated military personnel. They have the same mindset. You know, there's a great commonality of mindset between spies and, and military. And it's it's quite frustrating in some sense because you're getting out there leading the charge with a revolver has a certain dash and panache about it which can't ever really be captured in the world of espionage and and I think it's very interesting in in the, the closing chapters that Ben explored Montague's frustration that he wasn't recognised for what he'd done. The person I think who emerges as the real hero in all of this is Chumley because actually he was the one who was absolutely determined that his fantastic achievements wouldn't be recognised and that's that's a particularly extraordinary mindset in my opinion. Yes, I mean the irony of the person who says in the film is anybody not writing a novel and he he was the one who wasn't and the story was actually written several times I mean, quite, quite soon after it actually happened. Tell us a little bit about the different variations the story went through. Well what I love about this is that of course it emerged after the war as a novel <laughs> i mean it, it was duff cooper who was the minister for information who decided the only way to get round the official secrets act was to present it as a novel so he wrote a thing called operation heartbreak which is a kind of fictionalized version of the case and his justification for doing that was that winston churchill after dinner was sort of telling this story to everybody who would listen <laughs> and so therefore he said well if he can do that then i can write the novel once the novel was out that was then you and montague's excuse for saying well if there's a novel there then i can do a non-fiction version so he wrote his own version which is called the man who never was but that itself was partly deceptive that book it contained at its heart a massive great falsehood, which is that Montague maintained that the body had been obtained with the permission of the family and that he'd given his solemn word to the family that he would never reveal the identity. This is what is commonly termed, well, in law, a lie. (laughs) Um, Because, in fact, they'd done no such thing. They'd simply stolen the body illegally from a coroner with the collusion of one of the most senior coroners in England. And and Montague covered it up. And, And then it became a film the Man Who Never Was, uh, made by Ron Neem, starring Clifton Webb. But again, it's sort of it's set in train this kind of strange mystery about the identity of the body. And it's it's something that people still today continue to to carry on sort of speculating about, even though we know for a fact that the body was that of a homeless Welshman called Glyndor Michael. Um, and that was not revealed until the, the files, the mincemeat files, were declassified uh, starting in 1996. So what I love is the various different iterations of this story. And there's even now a musical called Operation Mincemeat <laughs> no. as well. So it's it's been through just about every no. stage. So it has these extraordinary 
different iterations between reality and fiction that I completely love. And it's also at its heart, it is itself a fiction. How did you get to it, though? The truth is, I just got really lucky, Rory. I mean, I, you know, they, they, they began releasing the mincemeat files at a time when I was becoming really interested and fascinated in this stuff. And the mincemeat files are extraordinary. I mean, they stand four feet high. There are something like eight and a half thousand documents in it. And it's it's absolutely dense history. It's, it's wonderful warp and weft stuff from moment to moment, literally almost minute to minute, you can follow the action. And what's wonderful about those files is that they are kind of honest in a way that most government files really are not. Hmm. Most government files are written with the expectation that they will be made public at some point. And therefore, the writers tend to sort of frame themselves in particular ways. I won't say they're actively deceptive, but they kind of massage the impact of these things. That's not true of spy files, because spy files are never meant to be read by anybody except the people involved in the operation. Mm -hmm. And so they're honest. In a way, so when it goes wrong, when Mitsumit starts to go wrong, they actually write in the margins of these notes, we're going to hell in a handcart here. This is a complete cock up. We are finished here. And so you really do get, I mean, you were saying at the, at the top of the programme, you were saying, you know, you know, if somebody scratches their nose and, and you put that in the book, is that true? Absolutely. I mean, the, the reality here is that there was so much. In fact, I, I ended up not using quite a lot of stuff in, in the mincemeat files because there just wasn't room to get it all in. And so that's the lovely thing. If I say they were panicking, they were definitely panicking. In those files, was there a great deal that was redacted? Almost nothing by the time I got to them. I mean, one or two real names, because as, as you know, Julian, I mean, the rule is... MI5, not MI6. MI6 will never release its files, I suspect. Yeah. But MI5 can release its files after 50 years if there is no impact on national security or privacy. The only bits redacted in the mincemeat files as they currently exist are one or two names, which in 1996 referred to people who were still alive um, and they didn't want to compromise their privacy. Everyone involved in Operation Mincemeat is now passed on, uh, although Thankfully, some of them were still alive when I was researching the book, and that was absolutely fascinating. But so, in fact, all of those have now been publicly identified. Later in this series, we'll be talking to Philippe Sands about The Rat Line, um, which is a wonderful, totally absorbing podcast about the Nazis fleeing immediately after the Second World War, finding themselves in Italy, and then being turned from being fleeing Nazis to actually working an operation in Los Angeles with the Italians against the communists. It's an extraordinary story. But Philippe comes across this, uh, the first episode is The Secrets in the Castle, where he finds himself with the son of the main character. Was it you and Montague's son who you encountered and opened the door and almost said, come in, Mr. McIntyre, I've been expecting you? <laughs> well, it's one of those sort of moments that sounds completely filmic. Um, and that is exactly what happened. I contacted <laughs> Jeremy, who appears in the film, actually, as a young boy. And I said, you know, did does your father leave any papers? And he was he was a lovely man, Jeremy. He said, yes, I think, I think there is something upstairs. And we went upstairs and he pulled a trunk out from under the bed. I mean, it sounds as if I've made this up and I promise I didn't. It, tip, tip for foreign uh, intelligence agencies, look under the bed first. <laughs> always under the bed, <laughs> covered in dust. He pulled this thing out and it was absolutely stuffed with papers that Montague had lifted from MI5 at the end of the war, which is exactly, as Jeremy will attest, what you're not supposed to do as a spy. You're supposed to send all this stuff back. I think Montague knew right from the get-go that he was onto a fantastic story here um, that would make him extremely well-known and would, you know, so I think he, he knew what he was doing. But it contained extraordinary things that had never been published, including a whole set of photographs 
of the operation as it was taking place. You know, they were taking photographs of each other on the great drive north with the body in the back of the truck as they're about to get it onto the submarine. That was all photographed, and none of those photographs had ever been seen before. So that was an absolute treasure trove, and extraordinary. Julian, we've been saying how utterly fantastical the whole plot is looking at it from your professional perspective uh, with the work that you're doing now. I mean, how how would you react? So occasionally I, I advise on uh, adaptations of spy novels onto the screen. And um, you can imagine that I'm presented with a number of scripts, some of which are so fantastical as to be not even believable on the silver screen. I think if I were to be presented with mincemeat before reading Ben's book, I'd have just said, um, don't be ridiculous. <laughs> That can't possibly can't possibly come across as a believable story, and I think that's that's at the heart of it. That's its beauty, in fact. I, I have a lovely fantasy of what would happen if you did try to present it today. I mean, the the thought that of what health and safety would say about the idea of let's let's get a dead body, let's keep it gently rotting on ice. Yeah, you know, I mean, just you can imagine the sort of panic. And I always I felt throughout reading your book, Ben, and 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 watching the movie, that one of the central aspects of this, and and it's a testament to the humanity of the individuals involved, was this embarrassment that they had about the fact that they were using somebody's body. Mm. And, you know, for all of the post-mortem recognition of Glendia's service, at the heart of it, there's something quite unpleasant, mm. as as noted in the original Trout memo. And I, I don't think anybody involved has ever quite got over that, have they? Well, Chumley was, was keen in the film, certainly, to show res- due respect yeah. to the fact that they were dealing with a real person. And I think uh, as the film ends, not a spoiler, because you know this is a story that has been told many times, but that he was finally recognised in the cemetery in, in Huelva, the final scene in the film, where actually that's very late on. Was it 1997, I think? 97, it was after the name had come out in the official files that the British government decided to kind of, to add a postscript, I mean, physically, a sort of carved postscript to the the gravestone itself. And it's an extraordinarily poignant and touching place, actually, Huelva Cemetery. There's something very ghostly about it. And that, and that, that gravestone has become a sort of site of pilgrimage, actually, for, for, for a lot of people. I mean, one of the things that I, I hope the film does, and the, and, the, and the book certainly attempted to, was to try to restore to that character, to Glyndor Michael, some semblance of humanity and character. Because, mm. you know, he was really the man who never was up until that point. He had been written out of history as a kind of faceless hero. But actually, he was a real person who had lived a, a really tough and tragic life. And it's, you know, we were talking earlier about, you know, people who can serve in different ways. And, and I mean, he is unique in a way in mm. the annals of sort of military history as he's a warrior who managed to serve when he was already dead. And that is, that is, that is, it sounds absurd. But it's also a kind of little window into... Lots of people served in this story, including women, actually, mm. whose roles have never really been appreciated. Yes, we talk, I mean, this is the, the man who never was, but so often in these films there's the women who never were because their story isn't told. And in this one they are. I mean, there's a sort of quartet at the heart of the film and two of those are, are the women played by Penelope Wilton and Kelly MacDonald. Well, the Penelope Wilton character is absolutely, well, I don't, she can't be absolutely true to life, but she's very, very close to the real Hester Leggett, who was a senior secretary in, in MI5. MI5 did not 
allow really women to go above the role of secretary. But she was absolutely pivotal to the running of Operation Mincemeat, absolutely front and centre. Actually, the role of women in deception operations and sabotage operations in the Second World War was extraordinary. Mm -hmm. uh, and you only have to look at the Special Operations Executive. Three of the first George Cross medals ever ever presented to women uh, went, went to members of the Special Operations Executive. And, and, and some of those operatives behind enemy lines faced the most horrendous torture and the most complex uh, of, of operations and discharged them with the, uh, extraordinary credit. Um, and I, I think it's, it's not recognised enough, actually, how much women did, in, particularly in deception, but more widely in the Second World War. I think that's absolutely right. And it's one of the reasons why MI5's decision, I think, to declassify its files is such a clever and intelligent and right thing to do in the 21st century. And I just hope MI6... Uh, the external service, the secret intelligence service, will also eventually realise that secrecy is a double-edged sword. And, and while it is absolutely vital to all intelligence operations, retrospective secrecy denies some people, you know, the the credit that they deserve in, in, in these sorts of stories. And, and I think the women's role in the Second World War, as Julian says, is absolutely ripe for, for another look. Mm. Yeah. Beneath all of this, the sort of very granular level, it, it comes down to convincing people that you're something that, that you're not. And does that get to the heart of being a spy for you, Ben? Yes, I think it does. I mean, you know, we're all fascinated by the double life. You know, we, that, I think that is one of the reasons why spy fiction and nonfiction are so popular is that, you know, deeply embedded in, in our sense of reality is the idea that we could be someone else, mm -hmm. that we could be, we could frame ourselves as someone completely different. And I think that is the essence of, of a certain sort of spy craft is, and it's probably also why spies make such good novelists is I think their sense of their own drama a lot of the sort of spies and ex-spies that I've known in my life have a sense of their own role in a wider picture, in a wider story. And they are imaginative people who see themselves in certain roles. So I think that is absolutely central. But, I mean, you know, the idea that somehow this is sort of antique and it doesn't work that way today is not true. I mean, you know, human intelligence is as important as it's ever been. And believe it or not, there is a training program at GCHQ, the, the, the communications centre, called Operation Mincemeat. <laughs> and that is used to train people to create false identities online. Because, of course, if you are trying to penetrate a terrorist cell in Raqqa, let's say, mm -hmm. and you need to do so under a false identity, that false identity has to be just as believable as the wallet litter that Montague and Chumley put into the dead man's pockets. But it has to be done digitally. Mm -hmm. it, there has to be a Facebook pass. There has to be family. There have to be emails. There have to be texts. There has to be something that somebody who was who is good with this stuff could dig up and say, mm, actually, this is a real person. So so the whole idea of Operation Mincemeat is still current. It hasn't gone away. This is very much your world, isn't it, Julian? The concept of digital wallet litter is, is a fascinating one. It's, it's got to stand up to scrutiny by the likes of organisations such as Bellingcat, mm. um, who you know are, are experts in decoding what's seen online, and and they've solved many a, a mystery. And you know today's world is is extraordinarily difficult to create and defend and backstop uh, a new identity, and it's only going to get more difficult with facial recognition technology. Everything that we do, we leave digital marks, don't we now? Absolutely. So if you imagine you're trying to create a, a second identity, first of all, you need to get rid of your primary identity because even a, a reverse Google search image lookup 
could blow somebody's legend. It's a whole new set of challenges. But, you know, I, I want to come back to that question about whether deception acting is the heart of espionage. And I, without wanting to contradict Ben at all, uh, I, I look at it slightly differently, actually. I think at the heart of espionage is persuading other people to do things that you want them to do, occasionally against their better judgment. And certainly in many cases in a situation uh, where they might be in danger. Um, and deception is a part of that, but it's not the full story by any means. And in fact, sometimes the relationship between an officer who is very clear about what he's doing and and, a, and an informer is better than, than one shrouded in deception. Yes, a very good point, of course. Julian, I mean, there's, there's a wonderful scene in the movie where they're trying to get the wording right on a letter that has to be absolutely convincing. And they go through 14 drafts before they think, well, why don't we actually get the person who's meant to be writing this letter to write it themselves? I mean, does that have a ring of truth about it? Do you find yourself having to go to these extraordinary lengths to achieve tasks which are very mundane? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we talked earlier on about the risk of over-engineering, though. And, and I think, you know, looking at some of those earlier drafts of the, of the letter, that was where they were going. You know, it was they were trying to make it too perfect. And actually, something that looks too perfect is usually too perfect. In a way, the, the real cleverness of a good framer of an operation is to engineer something that looks a little bit slapdash it's why that's back to where we started isn't it about the, the churchill in the film drawn to it because of the very unbelievability but life is unbelievable isn't it and it, you know if presented with i can well imagine psychologically there's some very fine brains in german intelligence at the time there were some flawed characters and we've played into their need their desire to believe something and and as ben makes very clear you know we, we were helped by certain individuals within Hitler's coterie who actually wanted him to believe it because they thought it was untrue. So there's a whole series of factors at play there. In in one sense, the fact that it, it, it could be seen through was quite helpful because somebody who wanted it to be untrue but was willing to present it as true to Hitler himself played on that fact. Now, whether or not that was thought through during the creation of the operation, I mean, I suspect it wasn't, but, you know, what a, what a happy coincidence what, what what serendipity was that true ben as well because you know that I, I thought it might have just been a plot device that that, that uh, you you really do think that the whole thing is going to fall apart no that's no that's all true i mean you know oh, extraordinary it, well it's true in essence i mean he's one of the great mysteries in this in this story is the head, the sort of chief analyst of the abwehr who, who hitler completely trusted alexis von Werner was himself an anti-Hitler plotter. And he was executed <laughs> by Hitler after the July plot. He was deeply involved in it. And we know that before the D-Day deception, he deliberately exaggerated material that he knew to be false in order to try and ensure that the D-Day landings worked. And there is strong circumstantial evidence that he did exactly the same thing with Operation Mincemeat, that he was too sharp to know that this was true. And indeed, the report that he then subsequently sent on to Hitler was in, in sort of journalistic parlance, he had put the bellows on it. He had he had given it more air than it really deserved. So was that him deliberately inflating something that he knew was not true? We'll probably never know. But he was certainly an anti-Hitler plotter and he was in an absolutely pivotal position to give this deception, if he knew it was a deception, 
the push that it needed. So that's just that extra element of... And there's a wonderful line in the film where Colin Firth says, something is either true or it is something that we want to be true. Mm-hmm. And that's that's true of, of every form of deception. And it's true of human life. You know, what we, what we believe is very often not something that is true. It's what we hope for. Yeah. And again, that draws us to the spy fiction and to your books indeed, Ben. And you just mentioned the, the, the character there, but you must have difficulty deciding who to write about next because there are so many characters that could take you in so many different directions. It's an extraordinarily sort of fertile area. And yes, it's, it's rather wonderful at the moment. I mean, more and more of these stories seem to be emerging from the past and indeed plenty in the present too. I mean, anyone who thinks that military deception is not absolutely part of our modern world isn't following the conflict in Ukraine closely enough because that is all about smoke and mirrors and false trails and false flags and stories that may or may not be true. So, you know, we are we are deep in this world and it and I think it does address something that we all feel quite strongly about, which is where does the truth end and where does fiction begin? Ben, you mentioned Ukraine there. I mean, from your perspective and, and having studied these characters and, and wartime, just, what's, what is your perspective on Ukraine? Well, I don't want to overlink this to Operation Mincy because, of course, Operation Mincy was filmed and made and written long before there was any possibility we thought of there being a yet another ghastly war in Europe. I'd hate it if, we, if it seemed that Operation Mitsubishi was somehow being marketed on the back of that tragedy. But the links are absolutely undeniable. This is partly an intelligence war. This mm. is partly a war of fake news and, and misrepresented news. And, and that happens on all sides. I mean, you know, we've got that extraordinary situation. And it seems to me that one of the elements, and I'd love to hear Julian's view on this, about the Ukraine story is that Putin went in there on reports from his own spies, the FSB, that told him this was going to be a walkover, that this was going to be easy, that the Ukrainians would welcome them with open arms. Well, this is what happens if you have an intensely hierarchical intelligence system where you don't want to tell the boss what he doesn't want to hear. I mean, you've only got three very nasty options there. If you tell him what he doesn't want to hear, he fires you. If you tell him the truth and that turns out to be right. He fires you. So you've, your only option really is to tell him what you hope will be the truth and he wants to hear and pray that you get away with it. And it appears really that that's one of the central elements of what has happened in Ukraine. Putin himself may have been the victim of a sort of deception. One of the points about espionage is, is that officers are there to do the bidding of their political masters. And so there's a, there is, of course, a great temptation all the way down the chain to, to as far down as the, the person on the ground supplying you with information. There's, there's, there's a temptation to present information which fits into the narrative. Uh, and, and the really good service will weed that out. And that, of course, wonderfully takes us full circle because the plot of Our Man in Havana, one of the great spy books of all time by Graham Greene, is about somebody making up what the bosses want to hear mm. because that's 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 the temptation. Uh, absolutely, and I, I think we've seen I think we've seen some cases of that which are now coming out in in, in the public domain in, in more recent history. But what's fascinating about Ukraine, from my perspective, is it started, I think, with the invasion of Iraq, where intelligence was adduced in public forum as, as, a, as a case of spelli or as a basis for, for an operation. And, and that's something quite new. And I don't think I've ever seen quite so much reference to what intelligence is telling us and what we're saying that we know about intelligence on the Russian side as well. And, and that's fascinating because you've got a whole new hall of mirrors there, because what is it we're being told 
is true and is not true. And that crossover between propaganda and intelligence is a is a is a fertile area for exploration. But uh, good luck to anybody who tries to get to the bottom of it. <laughs> and I suppose in both cases, in a sense, the decision has been made to act to go to war, and then the, you, you then need to, the intelligence to back that up. And in a sense, you know, you know what you're looking for, and you know what you want. And people perhaps will give you, like with the dossier, they will present you with the evidence that you want to carry out uh, an invasion in the case of Iraq or or in the case of Ukraine as well, that you are already planning to do anyway. Yeah, of course, the media is only too happy to pick up on anything which which has the word intelligence or, or espionage attached to it. You know, so they, they will run with stories of questionable veracity because it makes for very, dare I say, it, sexy reading. I didn't ask you, actually, Julian. Um, ben said sort of very eloquently earlier on what draws people into this whole thing of, of stories of uh, spying in the past and, of course, the fictional around it, Ian Fleming and James Bond and all of that. What is it, to your mind, that draws people into this? What is it about spies that people find so intriguing? Well, we all want to know the secret, don't we? I mean, I asked Ben earlier whether there was much that was redacted in the, the mincemeat papers that he was going through. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and what I always find very interesting about release of government papers is as soon as they're released, to a certain extent, and this obviously doesn't apply in, in, in this case, but to a certain extent, it becomes uninteresting apart from that bit that lies behind the redactions. Of course. So we're all fascinated by what we can't know. And this is this is one of the I've long said this is one of the problems that anybody writing or making films about the real world of espionage is a problem that they face. That as soon as it's made clear, as soon as everybody's let into the secret, like an old film negative, it, it fades in the light and becomes much less interesting. Absolutely right. And I think secrecy is a kind of drug too. It is. And it's very addictive. And once you have lived in the secret world, you know, it's a sort of club in a strange way. You know, you you, you have a sort of set of people with whom you can share the secret and others that you definitely can't. And I think uh, someone once described it to me once, and I think this is sort of both unfair, but also quite true, that in some ways, espionage and, and intelligence is is the ruthless exercise of private power. Yeah, that that this that you are standing next to somebody on the forty-seven bus, and they don't know what you know. That is a that is a very addictive. It's it's a rem, it's a it's a it's a strange feeling, and it's you know it's it, actually in my tiny way as a historian, it's it's the little thrill that I get when I do open those files and I see something, and I think, my goodness, no one knows that. It's funny because uh, David Frost always used to say that he said he he, he always loved to ask people the question privately. So, what are what are the secrets that you will carry to the grave? <laughs> are you going to tell me? How brilliant, um, Ben! Yeah. It goes without saying we'd recommend watching Operation Mincemeat on Netflix in select territories, and indeed reading the book if you're diving deeper. And it's, uh, the both are excellent. Uh, outside of your own work, is there anything from the spy world you think we should be looking out for? Well, in spy fiction, I mean, I'm yes, I mean, gosh, I'm, there's some great spy fiction. I'm loving the the sort of Mick Heron adaptation, um, Slow Horses. I think that's utterly wonderful. And there are some brilliant writers of spy fiction around, many of whom are former practitioners of the trade. I'm thinking of you know <laughs> Charles Cumming, for example, who who's I think absolutely brilliant, but he himself was part of MI6. There's definitely a link. Thank goodness I, I was never recruited. I think I, my grip on reality would never have borne the test, I don't think. Julian, have you still got books to write? Are you tempted by that? And if not, are there authors that you follow in particular? Well, I mean, I, I've certainly uh, taken pen to paper, but um, you know, it's it, we, we've explored that theme a lot. It's I think it's it's pretty much impossible to think of anybody who's worked in that world who doesn't want to write 
about their experiences, at least in novelistic form, because in novelistic form you are you do have a little bit more uh, leeway. Of course, I, I'd never dream of publishing anything that didn't get authorization, and uh, you know, authorization is easier to get for people at Stella Remington's level, for instance, and than those are so more lowly. Um, but you know, there's a there's a great cathartic outlet in in just writing, even fictional espionage stories. But as for other recommendations, I I agree absolutely with Ben that. Charlie Cumming is is a, a go-to. I think I'm right to saying I don't think we've seen any of his novels so far adapted for the screen, which is a which is a great shame. But it will it'll come in time. Somebody said of Charlie that uh, he gets under the skin of modern espionage like no other novelist, and I think that's I think that's true. On the non-fiction side, I mean Ben is absolutely fantastic, if I may say so. Yes. Ben at, at turning non-fiction into almost novel-like gripping drama, and that's that's the particular skill that you exercise. But somebody else who is um, I think brilliant in the field, a little less well known uh, sadly at the moment, is Henry Hemming, who who wrote um, M mm. about Maxwell Knight uh, and and our man in New York. You know, it's, it's it's a very different style, but it's absolutely as gripping. And and finally, I've already mentioned, I think that fascinating book called Stars and Spies, which explores the crossover between the world of celebrity and the world of espionage, which is which is a greater overlap than you might expect. So there's some fantastic stuff out there, but Charlie definitely on the on the fiction side stands out in a very crowded field a, a field that's crowded by the likes of me trying to get published so there you go spy fans there are your recommendations for this week there'll be many other recommendations as we pass through the series and actually what i'd really like to do is to invite both of you to come back and do a podcast in 30 years time when we can talk about the things that are actually going on as we're speaking now which i'm sure will be amazingly fascinating as well as this world endlessly is thank you so much for your time Julian Fisher and Ben McIntyre, thank you so much. And thank you all for listening to The Spying Game. Up next on The Spying Game. If you really want to see success in this life and the next, you do it with this. And he picked up the AK-47. I didn't know the tower was going to fall. Who would have thought that, you know, back then? But when you see your fellow human beings dying, how can you leave? Part of the appeal of playing a spy for actors is that it feels so second nature to them that they do feel a kinship with spies. I had been playing a game, and the game is called Life. The scariest part of the work that I did is wading into the worldview of the person that you perhaps hate and fear most in the world and actually giving it the time of day. I had a permit from the government, from a sovereign government, to be a criminal. I joined thinking I would have a lot of trouble lying to people about what I did, <laughs> and it took about a week for me to get used to it. For them, I'm a traitor, I'm enemy of the state. We are not in touch by all means. When I took my face off, he almost fainted <laughs> because he had no idea that it was coming. Just brilliant. Do you have what it takes to be a true spy? Now you can put your spy skills to the test with Spy Games. Spy Games is the thrilling new experience at Spyscape in New York. Test your strategy, agility, and teamwork in high-tech game rooms developed with experts from CIA and Special Ops to stretch your physical and mental agility. Inspired by the CIA's operational training at the farm, Spy Games will help you develop strengths you didn't know you had. Think true spies in real life. Find out more at spygames.com.